You are now listening to Music Legends with your host, Chili Willie. Welcome back to another episode of Music Legends. I'm your host, Chili Willie, aka the Cheese Whiz Wizard. And we're back once again to continue our deep dive examination of Miles Davis and his crazy life. Today's episode is going to start out with a story that's all too familiar. It's an experience that countless black musicians have been victim of and musician or not, still are to this day, unfortunately. For Miles, this experience was a pivotal moment in not only his career, but his life. Another moment that dropped a stone on the scale, slowly tipping him from balanced and cool to downright cold and bitter. In this episode, we'll see that evolution firsthand. And just a heads up, this first story gets a little graphic. So with no further ado, close your eyes and imagine yourself outside a jazz club in New York City. You just saw Miles Davis perform his new album, Kind of Blue, which was just released eight days ago. And now the door to the jazz club opens once again, and a couple mysterious figures emerge. The wooden soles of Miles' shiny new shoes clicked up the stairs, racing against a cloud of smoke coming from the club beneath, and a pair of high heels from beside. A shadow of the jazz giant and a mysterious blonde beauty emerged as the smoke surrendered into the humid New York breeze. The sounds and sights of the city eased into his every sense. The street was bright as day, lit with the signs of musicians' names who were playing at several of the jazz clubs nearby. The night was young. All those lights shined in his eyes so strong you could hear the buzz. But Miles, Miles was used to the bright lights. Kind of Blue had come out just a few weeks prior, and his show was sold out and then some. Every inch of that club was packed, stacked, and loaded way above the suggested capacity. Now somehow, with a pinch of black magic or some bad fortune, Miles had made it out of the club in between sets to escort a friend to a taxi. Miles leaned off the edge of the curb and signaled the horde of taxis that were parked at the end of the street. There were dozens of them, just waiting for the rich jazz fans to come tumbling out of the clubs. One taxi was about to get an early start. The yellow cab pulled up and Miles opened the door. Miles' friend, this mysterious blonde, she couldn't see Miles' eyes, nor his soul. They were both masked by his jet black shades. All she could see was a reflection of herself and the yellow cab glistening in his glasses. He had an impeccable poker face. The woman, on the other hand, did not. Even the cab driver knew the look she gave Miles as she got in the back seat. Miles handed the driver a crisp $50 bill and shut the door. The cab drove off. And it wasn't long before Miles began to miss that cloud of smoke he walked out of the club with. He pulled a pack of cigarettes out of his jacket pocket and gave birth to a whole new cloud of smoke. So there Miles stood at the edge of the curb, thinking and enjoying his smoke underneath his name written in a hundred glowing lights. And just then, a figure emerged from the mugginess of the August night. His outfit was dark, his walk was militant, and his voice was loud when he yelled, Hey, you, move on out of here. As the figure approached, Miles started to notice the badge. NYPD. Move on. Move on for what? I ain't doing nothing. I'm working downstairs. 
You see that up there? That's my name, Miles Davis, he said as he pointed to his name glistening on the marquee. But the officer didn't check the sign. Instead, he got close to Miles. So close, he could have popped his personal bubble with his nose. I don't care where you work. I said move on. And if you don't, I'm going to have to arrest you. Miles felt the rage burning inside, but he refrained. He looked at the officer with that impeccable poker face and didn't move an inch. They stood there, just staring at each other for a few moments, till the officer spoke up once again. That's it. I'm not going to tell you again. You're under arrest. The officer grabbed his handcuffs and leaned in to put them on Miles, but things didn't exactly go as the officer had planned. Miles snapped into action and slapped the cuffs right out of the officer's hands. But by the time they hit the ground, the officer was already holding his nightstick. And Miles, who was way more physically capable than the officer, wasn't going down without a fight. The crowd began whirling around to see what all the commotion was about. And then, the reinforcements emerged. They were heard before they were seen, but just barely audible over the rowdiness of the crowd and the brawl. The crowd started to separate, revealing the blood-soaked concrete where Miles was fighting for his life. They crept up behind Miles and hit him over the head one final time. The next thing he knew, he was face down, chin scraping the concrete. He tried getting up, but felt a sharp surge of pain in his wrists. And that's when he realized his hands were behind his back, tightly bound by the very handcuffs he so desperately tried to avoid. Miles had never felt so helpless and humiliated until that moment. The handcuffs were so tight that they pierced and cut open his skin. He didn't want to move, but at this point, it was fight or flight. And then, he saw him. The shiny black boots of an all-too-familiar uniform appear on the concrete at eye level. With the same level of respect that a poacher treats a fresh catch, the officer turned torturer, grabbed Miles' expensive suit, and walked him to the back of the police car. At the beginning of the night, Miles looked like a million dollars. Not anymore. Blood, sweat, and pride was running down the brand new khaki suit and his poker face, well, that was replaced by gashes, bruises, and a few tears. Miles was taken to jail, and of all things, charged with assaulting an officer. Then, he was taken to the hospital, where he received five stitches. He was released on a bail of $525, which in today's money is about $4,600. By January 1960, he was acquitted of disorderly conduct and third-degree assault. Miles was used to this kind of extreme racism back in St. Louis, but he'd never experienced anything quite this bad in New York, the city that he'd thought to be the slickest and the hippest place in the world. Well, at least until then. He'd achieved so much, but it was becoming clearer than ever to Miles that no amount of success, no amount of fame or recognition could save him from the powerful hatred of racism. 
His eyes had been open to the facts, and now it was hard to close them. St. Louis wasn't just racist, so was New York. And if New York was racist, then the entire world was. Time ticked on, but the experience still lingered heavy in Miles' mind. A whole month had passed since the attack, but his mind would drift off into dark places as he tried to sleep. Every time he closed his eyes, he was transported right back to the concrete digging into his chin and those handcuffs slicing his flesh. So he laid there, awake in his bed, as he did most nights since the attack. He tossed and he turned with all those thoughts rattling around in his mind. Miles smacked his alarm right off the bedside table and squinted out the window as the sun beamed in right into his eyes. It ricocheted over his shiny silk sheets as he pulled them over his head. Just as Miles had started reaching new heights in his career and life, he was also starting to become even more cynical and cold. He was lying in his comfortable bed, yet he was still uncomfortable. Miles had a mountain of emotion lying on top of him. He had a few different ways of motivating himself. He took a bottle of vodka that was sitting on his nightstand and poured the shimmering substance down his throat. It wasn't even 9am. He wiped his mouth and closed the bottle tightly and urgently, almost as if he stuck that mountain of emotions right into the bottle. That same bottle followed him throughout his day as he traded his dark emotions for the throat burning liquid. And by the time the evening rose, as he got up on that stage, an avalanche of emotion came falling off that mountain through his horn. His band was blown away as they were every single time they played with him, if only they knew what was really going on. On the other side of the stage was John Coltrane, who was finishing off the tour with Miles and the band, but had his own band waiting for him when he got back. Not many people saw the potential of the young John Coltrane at this point, but Miles did. And he allowed him the space he needed to become the artist that we would later come to love and revere. It kind of blew, well, that was just about the perfect door to break through. But now he was on to bigger and better things. He'd now formed his own band and was in the prime of his solo career. And Miles was starting to miss him. Miles never dwelled on a feeling for too long. But other thoughts prowled through the deepest tunnels of Miles' hopeless romantic mind twisting and turning, trying to find their way out. The only hope of escape was for Miles to confront them. Everybody can fall in love, but how do you make it last? Those words would echo in his mind almost every minute of every day. And this was just one of many uncomfortable thoughts that would roam around his mind every day. But he felt this one, this particular thought, deep within his soul. Miles did what he did best and turned his uncomfortable thoughts into musical motivation. So he made a romantic ode to his girlfriend, Frances Taylor. 
He even put her on the cover. This album was called Someday My Prince Will Come. And yes, the title track was originally performed by Snow White. But Miles, he always loved a great melody. So he took what once came from a Disney movie and flipped it on its head. He gave it depth, character, and funkiness. After a few years, Miles and Francis' love continued to grow, and they got married. But on the contrary of what the wife was supposed to be in that time period, marriage wasn't going to stop Francis from pursuing her career in dance and theater. At least, not yet. West Side Story had just become a Broadway hit, and every dancer on the planet wanted to be involved. Unfortunately, the stage can only fit so many, and the spotlight well, even less. But the thing about the spotlight is there's always room for those special few. It was audition day, and Francis was about to walk on that stage to try out for the Broadway phenomenon, just like the hundreds of other dancing girls that walked those same steps that day. But Francis, she didn't walk, she strutted. The spotlight blared to a shine that blinded her and she embraced it. She started snapping her fingers and softly singing. It was a beautiful melody that commanded the judge's attention. She'd built this fun environment in five minutes, right before their very eyes, and the judges were falling in love before her very eyes. Although, she couldn't exactly see, because she was blinded by that spotlight. Then suddenly, spotlight turned off. As her sight slowly developed back to normal, she could start to make out the judges. And then, their smiles. She was in, just like that. And the clouds are all the way. Shining down We Should make a date with Parson Brown So Eliza During rehearsals, Francis was surrounded by beautiful men and women every day and Miles' love began to grow into an obsession amplified by alcohol, cocaine and jealous, fearful and painful thoughts Now, the alcohol and the cocaine they weren't exactly good for those painful and fearful thoughts now Francis, she wasn't exactly a big fan of the cocaine or the alcohol either. She looked at Miles like he was crazy. Maybe he was. But in Miles' mind, he was sane and on top of the world. In Miles' mind, she was the crazy one. The fear turned to anger. 
and the anger turned to action. Now one day, Miles' jealousy grew and grew until he couldn't take it. A blistering, fiery rage grew inside him as he snorted line after line of cocaine and it rushed through every popping vein and tightened every muscle in his body. He felt like a superhuman. His body was amplified in every way by this potion of madness. His senses were heightened, except for his sight. Miles had 20-20 vision. Now he had tunnel vision. And as if he was spying through a peephole, he stared at his red Ferrari in the garage and hopped in, speeding away. His thoughts were swirling through his mind, just as his red Ferrari was swerving in and out of New York traffic. Lights turned red and cars honked all around him in the distance. Pedestrians' lives were spared, and drivers flipped Miles the bird. He didn't care. He didn't have two cares in the world. Only thing he knew was he was on a mission, a mission to find certainty. And he was racing. He was going 60 miles an hour in a 25. He might have been doing pretty good, except for that you never can find complete certainty. And somehow, even in a bright red Ferrari, the cops would never find him. Maybe it was the grace of God. Maybe it was just dumb luck. Maybe, maybe the cops just couldn't catch up. Because Miles had just embarked on a ride, or, or like a race, that any sober passenger would be terrified to take part in. And any cops, well, they'd give him a little bit more than a ticket. However, a very sober passenger was about to go on the ride of their life, and not so willingly. Miles threw the Ferrari into park and walked into the theater. The V8 engine was tired underneath that Ferrari's hood. It hadn't ever run so fast in its entire working life. Miles had put it to the test just minutes ago. And the crazy thing is, the rage and uncertainty within Miles was burning almost hotter than that engine. And that engine, it was finally catching its breath. But the fear and uncertainty inside Miles, that was growing like wildfire. Okay, you could have waited a fraction longer. Never mind being a bit still. It's good just to go. And then before you go anywhere else, not take another breath. You're already taking a breath. And then Inside the theater, his wife Frances was surrounded by beautiful dancers practicing for her new role in the West Side Story. But deep down, Miles stood out like a sore thumb, his eyes intently observing his wife, smack dab in the middle of hundreds of empty seats. She could feel it. Miles, he wasn't entertained by the private show, but utterly enraged. That fear and uncertainty growing with every heavy breath finally made its full transition to anger. All the attention Francis was getting on that stage, he wanted it. Every last drop. He wanted Francis all to himself. And all of a sudden at that moment, Francis saw or felt her husband in that empty theater. She was delightfully surprised that he came to visit. A few minutes later, a voice yelled from the second floor. Take five, everyone. Take five. Take five. Where have I heard that before? Miles thought to himself. He tried so hard to remember that for a split second, Miles was thrown out of his jealous rage. 
And then finally, it hit him. It was a song. In fact, it was one of the most inspiring piano riffs Miles had heard in the past few years. A song that was played in a completely unconventional way, using a unique and uncommon time signature. A song that messed with the tempo to the point that Miles' inner metronome was thrown off, tweaked, and tampered with. It was almost enough to send him into an even deeper trance than the wildfire of jealousy spreading throughout his body. When Miles' wife walked toward him with a smile lighting the entire room, the jealousy only took hold again, and this time with a vengeance. It spread all the way to his face and took control, shattering his million-dollar poker face. Frances wrapped her arms around Miles. What are you doing here? She asked with a fruity smell of excitement in her breath. Miles only became more enraged. At this point, Almost anything she did would enrage Miles, but he tried. He tried his damnedest not to show it. He grabbed her wrist tighter than a child holding on for dear life riding a roller coaster for the first time. I want you out of West Side Story. Frances. She heard that, and she stood in complete horror, her dreams crushed by the man she loves. Miles continued, a woman should be with her man. With his hands still clenched on her wrist, he started walking out of the building and dragged her along. And as you can imagine, it was a quiet ride back home in the Ferrari. Well, relatively quiet. The wildfire inside Miles had been put out, at least for the time being, and Miles' mind fell blank to the hum of the engine. On the other hand, Frances was sitting in the passenger seat, staring at her husband with a million thoughts running through her mind. She was at a loss for words and soon to be at a loss for sight. You see, the longer she continued to stare at her husband, the more blind she became. Her eyes started watering, but she couldn't look away. Although the wildfire inside Miles had turned to a cold ash, it was just as blinding as staring directly into the sun. Except Francis was staring directly in love. There you have it, another chapter in the Miles Davis story. I told you all things were going to get crazy. It's sad, I mean, up until the last episode, I feel like Miles was really channeling his emotions through music, and then more and more turning to more toxic ways of coping. You know, drugs, violence, especially after the police attack. I feel like it really killed a part of him. You know, the, the part of him that said... No, no, I can't focus on this right now. I got bigger fish to fry. The part of him that just played his horn anytime he felt like he had some kind of emotion to work through, you know? After the attack, he was just left with so many emotions. So many. That's the thing. I feel like humans, sometimes we just 
gravitate towards whatever's easiest. It's not easy to make a classic album. It's not easy to, to play music. You gotta practice, you gotta work hard. That's the thing. All these emotions, they were only amplified by the drugs he was doing. And all that just caused one of the saddest and the wildest downward spirals. Right now, where I left off, we're really only at the very beginning of that downward spiral. You see, Miles lived for a couple more years just on this ignorant bliss. <laughs> and at a time of ignorant bliss. The late 60s and early 70s. So the next episode we'll be exploring all of that, as well as digging much deeper into Francis's story around this time. I actually didn't even realize how much Jimi Hendrix and Miles's story uh, intertwined before researching for this episode. So definitely stay tuned. I think you're going to like it. Anyway, yeah, thanks for listening to the second season of Music Legends. Uh, this episode was written and produced by me, Willie Miller. Um, I'm thinking about making some Spotify playlists uh, based on the artists that I've previously done. Uh, kind of more just deep cuts, lesser known songs, maybe even some covers. Uh, so yeah, make sure to follow me on social media to check those out. All my links to social media are going to be in the show notes. Uh, you can also follow my personal Instagram account if you want. It's Chilly Willy Sounds. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, just a few things that I also put in the show notes to today's episode. Uh, it's going to be an article uh, talking about the police attack on Miles. Uh, I actually got a lot of the information uh, that I used in today's episode about that attack from this article and a few others. I guess I should note that although I do take creative liberties, I do a ton of research to make sure that I'm being as historically accurate as possible. Um, let's see, what else do I have? Oh, uh, so I have another interview with uh, Francis, Miles' wife. This one is a video in case you weren't able to read through the one that I put in the last episode's show notes, so I highly recommend it. Other than that, you already know. You've probably already done it, but if you haven't, rate the podcast, review it, or just share it with one other person. One other person who loves music as much as you do. All right. Well, that's all I got for now. Groundhog Day is around the corner, so uh, let's hope it doesn't see its shadow, I guess. Uh, all right, see you soon. Peace. <laughs>